Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. This economic and social and programmatic disruptions from COVID-19 pandemic have been felt by all of us. None of us have seen anything like this. Lots have been learned the last year and a half. Much is still unknown about how COVID will affect people over time, but research is ongoing. We are still learning and maneuvering around to stay on top of this pandemic. We are fortunate that the vaccines came in in record time and have been disseminated globally, preventing not only the infection, but most importantly, preventing severe disease requiring hospitalization and ICU intervention. For some of us who were infected by the virus, some recovered quickly with no lingering symptoms, but others are not as fortunate. And they continue to experience chronic lingering symptoms, which interferes with their quality of life. Many medical centers, as a response, have opened specialized units to better understand the post-COVID trajectory of patients and offer treatment and support based on sound data. Today, I am pleased to have one of my esteemed colleagues at Stanford who will help us understand this condition, the so-called long COVID syndrome or post-COVID syndrome. The sufferers are called long haulers, but that term may be probably defined or changed in the future. Linda Gang is a practicing internist at Stanford University. She is the co-director of the post-acute COVID-19 syndrome clinic at Stanford. She is also the director of consultative medicine, a specialty within internal medicine, which handles complex, enigmatic, or puzzling conditions in medicine. Linda is a true thinker. Combined with her passion in teaching and compassion for patients, her services are well sought out. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. That's such a nice and kind introduction, so generous, and it's such a pleasure to be here and, and to speak with you more about this important topic. Oh, thank you, Linda. I'm so happy to have you. So to get going, tell me, what inspired you to build this consultative team in medicine? And then most recently, the post-acute COVID syndrome clinic. Yes, thanks for asking. It's, you know, I think, as you mentioned, consultative medicine is sort of an emerging subspecialty within internal medicine. But I think as internists, we're all naturally drawn to complex puzzles and trying to put the pieces together from a whole body and holistic perspective. During my training, I definitely was motivated by the patients who I saw who struggled and suffered from rare or unusual conditions and puzzling conditions. And especially in our fast-paced modern healthcare system that's super subspecialized, 
you know, there's a lot of fragmentation in care and some of these patients get lost in the cracks of our healthcare system. And so I, I saw that as a challenge, but also as an opportunity for us to develop new ways and approaches to care for patients like with uh, undiagnosed disease or puzzling conditions. And so Dr. Bryant Lynn, one of our amazing colleagues, founded the consultative medicine program here at Stanford. And then myself, as well as others, including Dr. Justin Lotfi, had really become a core team. And we really believed in that effort to be a team-based second opinion program. And during my time with the team in consultative medicine, we saw, and Dr. Lotfi and Dr. Lynn as well prior, had seen these post-viral syndromes, really, we had a significant portion of our consultative patients who got sent by their doctors and said, like, these patients are having puzzling symptoms, lots of various, you know, fatigue and other symptoms that are quite unusual. And they usually are in this subpopulation triggered by a preceding infection. So we had already seen this, and this is before the COVID pandemic. You know, there are recognized post-viral syndromes, such as chronic fatigue syndrome, And when COVID-19, the news started to break out about patients who are suffering from persistent symptoms, the articles came out from research studies, it really became clear that this is going to be a big public health problem, and it is. And so I was inspired both from my own background, but also from the idea that teams and a multidisciplinary team is really important to tackle this challenging problem that is very multi-systemic in nature and heterogeneous and complex. So I reached out to other colleagues at Stanford as well, and we really joined together as a team to try to tackle this condition. And so uh, myself, as well as Dr. Hector Bonilla, co-direct our hub post-acute COVID-19 syndrome clinic. And Dr. Bonilla is an expert in chronic fatigue syndrome, one of the post-viral syndromes that I mentioned. And so we really wanted to bring together our passions and our backgrounds to try to forge an effort to help patients with this. It's so well needed, as you mentioned, and as an internist as well, we are so drawn to complicated syndromes to put some light on the different syndromes and see how we could understand the process and the pathogenesis of all the different conditions. So I'm sure there will be a lot more research to follow as we understand this. I mean, it's been an almost two years now of learning all these things as we evolve and pivot, you know, overnight changing things. We are all learning. So let's all jump right in. What is post-COVID syndrome? Yeah, and this is a key and really important question. A definition that has been dynamic as we learn more and maybe will be further refined as well as time continues. That's definitely A big theme here is this is our current knowledge, but definitely more studies will come out and our thinking might change as more research is done. I will say, so CDC has certain definition, WHO just came out with their case definition, the NIH has a certain, and there's also, as you mentioned in the beginning, different terminology too. There's what CDC calls as post-COVID conditions, which is a big umbrella term that includes a wide range of new or ongoing health problems that people can experience four or more weeks after first being infected with COVID-19. Whereas, for example, in the UK and also in some other big studies, they really have a separate definition where 
in the four to 12 weeks, it may still be what is considered a subacute or ongoing symptomatic COVID-19 or kind of that recovery phase. And then really beyond 12 weeks is when we're thinking of labeling as post-COVID-19 syndrome or post-COVID-19 condition, aka quote long COVID. And the WHO also, you know, states about usually three months from the onset of COVID-19 and lasts for at least two months. And here's the critical part is it cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis too, because a lot of these symptoms could also be from other conditions. And we want to make sure at the same time that as physicians caring for uh, patients with symptoms after COVID, that we evaluate thoroughly for any other potential cause. So these are umbrella terms because we're still trying to define, well, what exactly is it? And the symptoms are so wide ranging. Yeah, we'll explain all the symptoms as we go along. But I remember way back in December when we're about to launch the, the first vaccine, I did a podcast with one of our colleagues, Dr. Kenny, where we embarked on discussing the mRNA vaccines. And at that time, the message was to try to get uh, the a vaccine, get the vaccine when, mm. it's, when it becomes available to you, to mm. all the audience, right? So you don't get infected and you don't develop the long COVID syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were already talking about long COVID at that time in December. And I know after having been infected myself with COVID and I struggled initially with the acute disease, let alone to get worried about chronic disease, right? So just struggling to get by with my acute symptoms. And I, I felt that if I was not taken to the emergency room at that time, I may not have made it or I would end up in the ICU intubated. So I was thankful that some of my colleagues really took it upon themselves to send 911 to, to get me because I, I was so weak and I actually oh, didn't yeah. even realize how bad I was. I, I could not mm. breathe anymore. Yeah. So I think doctors as patients, it's such a different experience. So, mm-hmm. so, and even that, I mean, I've seen ambulance, 911, ERs and stuff, and I've yeah. done ER myself for five right. years. But being sick and hospitalized and being in that bed felt different. And being so close to even stopping breathing was so scary for me. Anyway, so I know everyone knows now that COVID is a multi-system disease, right? Mm-hmm. So at first we thought it was just mainly pulmonary. And then we found out that it's not just pulmonary, it's cardiac, neurological, kidney, liver, what have you is all affected. So there's a generalized inflammatory process. So therefore, when we talk about post-COVID syndrome, we could discuss about what are the symptoms of post-COVID syndrome? Right, yes. And I do think it's likely that within that umbrella of post-COVID conditions, there's likely a subset of patients who have persistent symptoms because of the immediate sequelae or or consequences of those multi-organ issues that happened during the acute COVID. So for example, if you did have a lot of lung damage in the ICU, you may have had the uh, respiratory failure and lots of inflammation and damage in your lungs. You may have scarring from that, and so you might have consequences from those. We'll say that that might be one category, so sort of that complications from those organ damages. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of the other symptoms that we don't really understand. And that a lot of times doesn't necessarily, and this is the puzzling part, we can do the CT scans, we can do the laboratory testing, and it may not show us what would be thinking that we could find. Like you could do the CT scan and somebody feels really short of breath, but we might not see anything. Maybe we're not looking for the right thing, but there's not necessarily that correlation of what we think of the organ damage from the acute infection. So some of those symptoms, the really common ones, but there's a myriad of them. It can really be multi, you know, multi-system, but a lot of the common ones are fatigue, meaning really tired. And some patients can be so debilitated. They may have been active before, but now if they walk a block, they feel like they just ran a marathon and they have to lie down maybe for hours, maybe even the next day they're feel like they really used up a lot of their energy and have to sleep and rest. And that can be debilitating and really disrupt their work and ability to do function in their daily lives. Fatigue is one, shortness of breath, that sensation of difficulty breathing or chest tightness and not being able to take a deep breath often persists. The other ones that are really common are thinking issues, cognitive issues, what a lot of patients just self-label as brain fog just almost like there's a fog or cloud in in your head and you can't think straight. And for example, I've had patients who work at really high functioning jobs who process a lot of information and, you know, they were great at their jobs before. Now just looking at their own writing, sometimes it's hard for them to read and just pay attention and focus and actually process those things again, or word finding or memory issues. And then the other ones include sleep disturbance, mood issues, dizziness and headaches, but the list really goes on. It can be, you could go into the gastrointestinal system, you could go into the neurological system and skin issues, et cetera. So it's really a myriad of various different things. Mm -hmm. Are there like predictors for development of the syndrome? I mean, is it like pre-existing condition or is it age or is it having had severe COVID, what have you, or were you hospitalized and were you in the wards or were you in the ICU? Are those predictors at all? Or Yes, these are really good questions. And there is data that people have tried to find and determine associations. Of course, you know, and this is the other interesting part in terms of distinguishing acute COVID from long or post-COVID, because we know a very strong risk factors, including male gender and older age for getting severe acute COVID-19 disease and acute COVID-19 infection, but that doesn't necessarily apply to long COVID. Although there's some variability in what the studies show, in general and more recently, we've seen there is a higher association of long COVID with female gender, actually, instead of male gender. And the dominant age groups, although some studies still suggest that there are risks if you're in older age groups, But that really looks at shorter follow-ups. And so that might still be those who are still recovering from ICUs and have prolonged recovery. But we're looking at long COVID. And even in our own clinic, actually, the most of the people are younger. So they're in their prime working years, 30s, 40s, 50s. And interestingly, the severity of the acute initial acute disease doesn't necessarily predict long COVID. In our clinic, for example, many of the patients, most of the patients, we're not hospitalized. We're not in the ICU. And so we know now that there are many people who have had mild or moderate or even minimally symptomatic or even asymptomatic that can still develop new symptoms after a few weeks or after a period of time. So it's it, that's the puzzle part too, is 
why is that, that there's not this correlation necessarily with severity of acute illness? So since we don't have a way to know what are the predictors and what are certain correlates to, you know, developing COVID, how could we then prevent it? Well, that gets back to that vaccine, right? It's so important. Step one, getting vaccinated so you don't get COVID, so you don't get long COVID, right? That's so important. We know that vaccines, well, they are incredibly effective and protective. There's no vaccine that's 100% effective. Their COVID vaccines are incredibly, they're amazing. And they definitely reduce transmission. They help protect you. But if you happen to get vaccinated and you happen to be one of the rare individuals who do have, unfortunately, a breakthrough infection, then the we know that the degree of severity of the disease, if you do get a breakthrough, tends to be less. And now there has been a large study, I believe it was out in the UK, that looked at it, data from a lot of people. And when they compared people who were fully vaccinated or partially vaccinated to those who were not, you could see that those who had breakthroughs had lower rates of getting long-term symptoms. So they had lower chances of having long symptoms after 28 days, even if they did get a breakthrough. So it's still very encouraging data to suggest that vaccines, even if you get a breakthrough, might help somehow protect you from the degree or, or risk of long COVID. I think more data still needs to come out and more research needs to be done. But but this is definitely encouraging data. So the vaccines to at this point is our best known tool and uh, facilitator to help prevent long COVID. Yeah, that is very reassuring for all the people who are proponents of the, the vaccine. So I think if people are still in denial or about the positive effects or outcomes with vaccination, I think this might make you pause and rethink it. So I think besides our public health measures, right, the the hand washing, the mask and social distancing, the vaccination are really just really imperative. Mm -hmm. Um, And now with the booster, because it had been known that antibody levels wane over time. So what are the what is the attitude of the medical community in terms of uh, post-COVID syndrome? And what is the attitude like out there, a perception of people? Yes. And that, of course, evolves and it differs and it, it can be heterogeneous. It, it sometimes is, you know, I think right now, after all the data that has accumulated over the pandemic period thus far, it's really created an obvious need for the medical community to come together to work together both clinically as well as on research and to push forward our understanding. Um, I think generally the attitude, of course, I don't speak for everybody, but, but you know, it's a recognized condition, right? CDC, like the big health institutions and health authorities have defined this condition, although that definition may still be refined further. It is a recognized condition by the medical community. And recently, you know, the NIH has just put forth tons of resources and money into the advancement of research in this area to better understand the biology and the prevalence, et cetera. And so there's a lot of investment. And this, that's so great because I think post-viral syndromes in general have been a neglected area. You know, that kind of what I was mentioning mm-hmm. at the beginning of our talk about this is, is sort of neglected. And, and unfortunately, some of those patients fall through the cracks and it's a prevalent condition. And a lot of times 
sometimes people feel dismissed and they kind of bounce around the medical system without a home to go to and without truly validation of what they're suffering from. And and so now the pandemic has almost brought like it's sort of a silver lining to it, a terrible devastating event, but it has brought attention to this neglected area. And hopefully mm-hmm. now we will then continue to move forward and shed some light and working together nationally and globally to tackle this challenging conditions. It's estimated there was a prospective piece in New England Journal of Medicine, you know, one of the most reputable and widely read journals in medicine. And that basically said long haul COVID, uh, a huge national health disaster that we need to address. And that one estimated about 1.5 million cases conservatively of long COVID. They're saying 10 to 20 percent, right, mm-hmm, of people mm-hmm. who had infection from COVID. Right. Uh, but that may be an underestimation, right? It could uh, be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we probably know more. But any glimpse of preliminary research that's very kind of like reassuring there, like remodeling, what could we do, like for now? Would it help to have bronchodilators to open our lungs? Or are there things that we could do for now while we're learning this to decrease the the scarring, the fibrosis, or what have you? Do we have any preliminary data? Yeah, that's a great question. We, as a collective medical and research committee, there's definitely urgency. We're urgently, and this is active area, of course, of research all around the world to try to better understand the biology of long COVID so we can better develop preventive and therapeutic measures. There's definitely no one single therapy, unfortunately, for this condition as of yet. And and it's likely targeted as sort of what you're alluding to, maybe for certain aspects, for example, if you have a lot of pulmonary symptoms, are there ways, especially if you had acute initial acute disease, are there ways to curtail the complications from that? And that may be possible. And it, it is There's some encouraging, although I would say it's still very preliminary, and I think many new studies need to be done. And in terms of interventions, we haven't really studied those well for long COVID. That definitely needs good quality, randomized controlled trials, well-controlled studies, large studies to really be able to draw good conclusions. But anecdotally, I can say even in our own clinic, we have tried some different therapies that may have some potential benefit to some of our patients. And so we're seeing some encouraging results. The next step is really to take the larger scale and to really be able to study it in a way that is very rigorous. And so we can have good conclusions and actually be able to change practice. But what we do know is that, and this takes a multidisciplinary approach, right? It, it depends on your symptoms. But there are certain strategies that people can use. For example, if your symptoms are really that you have persistent uh, smell or taste issues, there are through the ear, nose, and throat surgeons, as well as well as other folks who care for post-COVID patients, ways to rehabilitate that. Smell retraining, retraining. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Retraining as well as certain uh, rinses and sprays, including anti-inflammatory methods like steroids. And then in terms of lifestyle, and home care, these can have impact on people's recovery. And for example, people always thought that for fatigue, you should push yourself, make sure you don't get too deconditioned. But actually, if you have a lot of what's called post-exertional malaise, which means after you exert yourself, you really get drained, then you should actually wind things down and, and adjust, make accommodations at work or at home so that you don't push yourself too much. Give yourself some time. The one encouraging thing that I really 
want to drive home because it, it gives hope to patients too, is that a lot of patients do get better. It just takes some time. But encouragingly, a lot of patients do feel improvement over the months at different rates, but there usually is a positive trajectory. Now we still, it's still early. There are still people with long COVID for many, many months, and we don't know what the ultimate outcome will be, but that's an optimistic piece of data. And then for deep breathing issues, we know that deep abdominal breathing exercises and diaphragmatic breathing exercises, belly breathing can really help with lung recovery and also have beneficial effects on mood and pain and overall well-being. So that's also implemented in some post-COVID rehabilitation programs. And uh, of course, lifestyle modifications for brain fog, making lists and writing things down and getting maybe uh, therapy support and help if that's needed as well. And I don't want to also downplay because this is a really other important aspect of uh, long COVID. A lot of patients suffer from mood symptoms. So new or worsened anxiety and depression, and that can be for many different reasons, right? There could be a biological mechanism for it from long COVID, but also just even the stress and the also post-traumatic stress, right, of going through acute COVID can be really traumatic. And then having lingering symptoms and the social consequences or the work consequences and life consequences from that. And to be able to have and seek support in that area and bringing our experts and multidisciplinaries to really help as well as social work or behavioral experts, et cetera, to really be able to work as a multidisciplinary team. I really admire you creating this multidisciplinary uh, team to approach each facet of uh, the condition. I recall after I was out of the hospital, I felt so good, driven by the steroids, right? So, mm-hmm. so I felt so powerful and <laughs> I, I was vacuuming my room and the next day I went into this long walk and then a week later I started coughing mm-hmm. and then uh, that cough persisted for about a month. So, of course, our colleagues are in a hurry to try to treat me, right, and (laughs) give me everything. And they gave me back steroids to decrease the inflammatory process or the isospastic process or bronchospastic process. And I developed diabetes from that. So it was so bad that I had blurred vision. I couldn't see. And I was just drinking and and urinating. And I said, oh, my God, I have acute diabetes. and you know, sure enough, my glucose was on the 250, 300 levels. Yeah. So I think this is a different animal, COVID-19. It's such an isolating disease. Where would you get a disease that nobody could be next to you, next Mm -hmm. to you, to listen to you, to touch you? You're Mm -hmm. isolated, right? Throughout the process, when you feel so horrible, nobody can be with you. So I think we need a lot of emphasis on like moral and emotional support, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And people who suffer from this, they usually were, their baseline was very active. And all of a sudden, they're like a couch potato, right? And, right. Uh, and juxtapose that to their original pre-COVID level. So mm-hmm. that's, that might be very, very difficult to try to kind of like get used to the new like the new normal for for that particular person. So I think 
You're right. You would need multidisciplinary uh, approach to this, even probably like a lot of not just counseling, but, mm-hmm. you know, working with puzzles with these people to kind of like if, if you're a believer of neuronal growth and maintaining axons connection, etc. So these people may have to be retrained. So right. what do you do as a group to help support these patients? since there's not much that we could do for them, like treatment-wise, right? They always look up to us, like, do you have that magic potion too? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I I do kind of have a disclaimer (laughs) at the very beginning that our knowledge is still growing. And we unfortunately at this point don't have one curative pill yet. But like I was mentioning, we do have some promising potential therapies and we're starting to uh, try to repurpose some other drugs, including anti-inflammatory medications, and thinking of steroid alternatives, because we know, and of course, in this time when we're trying things and understanding that we want to do interventions that are not going to cause harm, right? And that's one thing we always think about as we try to treat our patients is do no harm. And medications certainly have side effects, especially steroids. But there are other anti-inflammatory medications that have shown some benefit anecdotally so far that need further investigation. And I think with that rigor that should come and and down the pipeline clinical trials, there is promise. And and I want to be encouraging for that. But at a center like ours, which is, there are many centers around the country and now around the globe that try to care for long COVID or post-COVID patients. Many of them are now set up as multidisciplinary because of the need that we see in these patients. And what we do here, at least our model, is that patients get referred by their doctor, you know, with persistent symptoms who've had initial COVID infection. And at least for our, we see people who have symptoms greater than four weeks, and they get full comprehensive evaluation by what's called the hub physicians or the portal physicians. And that includes myself, as well as two other infectious disease doctors, Dr. Bonilla and Dr. Schaefer. And from there, depending on their needs, we do a full assessment, you know, history and physical, et cetera, lab testing if needed. And then we determine if they need to see our also PACS team, neurologist, or cardiologist, pulmonologist, et cetera. We have a wonderful multidisciplinary team and maybe rehabilitation or they need cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia treatment, et cetera. And so we connect them in an expedited fashion with our colleagues who see post-COVID patients And then we meet as an interdisciplinary group regularly to discuss our patients, stay up to date on latest, you know, care practice, as well as ideas and literature. And so this is the way that we keep ourselves um, up to date and we help to support our patients and bring ideas to the table. Mm -hmm. I know we can learn from our experience. We also learn a lot from our patients. You know, they, they're avid readers also, and they have such incredible support groups now, you know, long COVID patients who now are able to connect with each other around the world and have also the internet and information at their fingertips and share their stories with each other. So we're all learning together and hopefully working as a whole, as they say, it takes a village. So working together to be able to advance our knowledge and understanding and, and treatment of this condition. So I'm, I, I'm encouraged. Yeah, yeah. I love that working together. As I always tell my students, let the patients be your book. So mm, um, exactly. we learn a lot from our patients. We learn a lot from our colleagues. So I know yeah. I always stop to your expertise when I have this company. <laughs> I definitely care about you too, Juliana. 
And one thing I will say too, if I may add, I, I love that you said that our patients are books. You, you need to learn from them. And I have to say, and this is something that has been written about in the media as well, but also in the medical literature, people, including physicians who suffer from long COVID, they can really feel dismissed. And especially in, especially earlier in the pandemic, we still don't really understand long COVID and it wasn't as validated as it is now and recognized it is now, and especially by the medical community. And I think with puzzling conditions in general, especially when they're poorly understood, not well-defined, or don't have a diagnostic test to kind of say that this is a disease that you have, we have to keep that in mind, you know, to validate our patients. They are the experts in their own lived experiences. And so we need to learn from them, especially in something as new as this, you know, keep an open mind and, and try to help them as best as we can while understanding and showing that compassion about what they're going through. And it's okay to say we don't know, but to validate and say, I know you're suffering and we'll do our best to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important because a lot of the patients that I met too said, I felt like they didn't believe me or I'm not sure if they really understood what I was going through. And so I think that's so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think sometimes just even sitting there and just listening to them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When we don't have much to say and really just listening to them and validating their symptoms. You know, I learned a lot from this as well, and I'm still learning. And so, right, me too. Yeah. yeah so, we're about at the end here, believe it or not. And uh, would, uh, could you have some take home points for our listeners in terms of what to do? How could they take care of themselves or what we could offer as medical practitioners? Oh, sure. Yes. So, and I think one take home point is that the definition of long COVID is being refined. But, you know, one of the kind of consensus or generally accepted ideas is at least four weeks, maybe about three months as the cutoff for long COVID. And then the myriad of symptoms and having a really comprehensive evaluation to understand anything else that might be going on. And then once we do reach a phase where there's going to be a lot more acceleration in therapies, but even now, I think multidisciplinary centers can help to uh, specialize centers for post-COVID can help to help A, validate the patients, but B, provide that up-to-date expertise and team-based care that a lot of these patients. And then I think, and also the importance of vaccination definitely is one of the, currently the, the most important, like one of the most important right, preventive measures that we have for long COVID. But the, the other thing too is it may be under-recognized. We talked about kind of the estimate of the prevalence, but as patients to seek out your doctor's care. If you did have COVID and you still have some symptoms or you have new symptoms that arise a few weeks later, ask your doctor and you can even say, could this be long COVID? And bring that up with your doctor. So I think some patients say, oh, well, I'm tired. Maybe that's just because I'm working too hard or there's a lot of reasons, but bring it up and because it might be long COVID. And then from the doctor's side, being able to think about this as a condition because there's such a wide spectrum of clinical symptoms and presentation and thinking about long COVID as a possibility, even, even you know, weeks and months out, right? And mm-hmm. the, the thing too about long COVID is that it can wax and wane. It can kind of flare up and go away a little bit. Patients can get a little bit better. And then, so it, even its natural history is not very well understood, but to keep that alert and so yeah. we can better recognize it and help our patients. Well, yeah, yeah. Collaboration and learning mm-hmm. this and I guess also being compassionate to yourself, right? So uh, like take care of yourself. I think that's what 
taught me and what taught my other patients as I listened to them is how important today is, right? So mm. live it today, just appreciate what it what you have today. <laughs> so right. being grateful and gratitude, yes, that's definitely true. Every day is so precious. And you know, I think we live in a society where we're always on the go, go, go. And I think and it, that becomes, you know, at heads with when you do have something like long COVID, because it, it really brings you, it, it drags you down. And, and it's sort of like your body telling you, you got you have to slow down. And like I mentioned about the fatigue, because, and we always say as doctors, right, you need to exercise more. And it, it, that's what's going to make you healthy. You know, this might not be one of those situations. This is probably one of those situations where you need to take it easy, listen to your body carefully. And, and rest, rest. Yeah, yeah. Really the best answer. And at this point, but we're there's much more to learn, and it's a really exciting time. And so, and like you said, we are we're all working together so we can help tackle this problem and, and help each other. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank I you. really I love hearing your expertise on this matter and Thank your you passion so to teach and to really take care of the patients. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And Thank you. Such a more, pleasure. More to follow from yes, your Yes, definitely more to follow. Yeah, definitely yeah. more to follow. Thank you so much, Julieta. This is so fun and such a wonderful opportunity to be able to share our, our experiences. And, and thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.